I think you really need to find people that are in your corner, no matter if you're an athlete or not. Just find somebody that helps you see the best in you. And, you know, like I said, holds you accountable. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's John here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Fueling the Pursuit presented by UCAN. The voice you just heard was that of Kerry Tollison, a 2004 track and field Olympian in the 1500 meters and multiple time champion in both cross country and track and field. Kerry was such a joy to speak with today. She gave us such insight about her mother and the role she played in Kerry becoming a successful elite runner. She credits her mother for her drive and her father who helped her to train her brain from an early age to help her become so gosh darn mentally tough. I've met and competed against a lot of Minnesota runners over the years and they all seem to have something special about them. I don't know what they're doing over there in Minnesota, but whatever it is, it's working. In all seriousness, Carrie seems to be a very happy-go-lucky gal and she admits that that's one of the secrets to her success. She competes best when she's free of concern and just running happily. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's one of the secrets to optimal performance in life. If you ask me, if you've never done anything with a more free-spirited attitude, give it a try. You never know. It might just work for you. Before we get into this episode with Carrie, I want to take a moment to introduce UCAN and this podcast to our newest listeners. UCAN is a go-to nutrition product of choice for so many elite athletes. But even UCAN knows that true success is about so much more than how you fuel your body. It's also about how you fuel your passion, your motivation, and your mindset. And that's why this podcast will take you inside the minds of Olympians, elite athletes, coaches, and trainers to better understand what drives them to constantly push to achieve new personal bests. We're so excited to have you guys on this journey with us and we hope we can give you a little more fuel as you work towards optimizing your own performances, both in sport and in life. Now, on to the episode with Carrie. All right, today's guest is Carrie Tollefson, 2004 Olympian at 1500 meters, multiple time US champion on the track and cross country, and one of the most accomplished US distance runners of her generation. She's now the mother of three kids, a successful podcaster and broadcaster, and recently ran a sub three hour marathon. We're looking forward to learning about the mental approach she used to achieve her professional success and what she continues to use to drive her today. Carrie, thank you for being here. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Carrie, I'd love to know a little bit about what you've uh, been up to this summer with your family. <laughs> well, what haven't we been doing? You know, we're not traveling a lot, but we're doing what we yeah. were doing last summer. We're playing every single sport you can possibly think of. I'm working quite a bit, so it's, you know, work for an hour, get outside for half an hour quick, get them back inside and do some more. And so we've been having a blast swimming and doing all kinds of things. It's, it's nice that the world is opening a little bit, but at the same time, here in Minnesota, we're so busy outside. So we're trying to stay safe and stay healthy, but, you know, just have fun doing everything we possibly can. I was fortunate enough to get to travel to Minnesota for some road mile races years ago. It's weird to say that it was so long ago, but my visit to Minnesota, the few times I got to go, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was gorgeous. And it was during the summertime. So I'm not too familiar with you know what it's like at different parts of the year, but I had never been there before I went for those races. And I thought it was so gorgeous. I can't imagine not being active when the weather's good. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's funny is we have so many active people here. 
year round. There's yeah. something about getting outside in those sub zero temperatures and we're running and then you come home and you feel like a rock star when your eyelashes are frozen over or whatever it is. But it is <laughs> so much better the nine months out of the year that we don't have to deal with ice or snow. But yeah, it's a wonderful place to be from. You know, I mean, I loved growing up here. I love being from here. This year, it was hard, though, with the civil unrest and George Floyd. I know the world can be an ugly place, and Minnesota saw it firsthand. It was tough, but yet at the same time, Minnesota is a place that I think sticks together, and we're going to pull together and hopefully change together. And so I'm proud of my state, even though I was kind of not so happy to be yelling from the rooftop. I'm I'm a Minnesotan all year, but I think that we're Mm going to hopefully see the good and see the change and get after it together. I see a lot of, you know, somebody has to take the lead and not always for reasons that they want to be in the lead, but, you know, it happens to be the focal point where you are at. And I think it seems to me that the community has made a big push to push for change there and stuff. And I mean, it's not really one of the topics we talk about a lot on this show, but I think it's important. There's been a lot of change and it's been exacerbated by COVID making every aspect of Mm -hmm. our lives has sort of changed. It's been forced to change, whether it's like our schooling, it's our work, we've had to change everything. And it's been a really difficult year. And and adding something like George Floyd is a very specific thing, but it's just been a challenging year, I think, across the board for everybody. Have you experienced that in your daily life? Less the George Floyd stuff, but more the day-to-day of doing all the things you need to do and managing the extra stress that's put on, I guess, by being in the pandemic? Yeah, I do think the pandemic has been hard. I think George Floyd and you know everyone else that has been taken from us in a terrible way mm-hmm. This year has been really eye-opening, and I think more so because I'm seeing how the world is through the eyes of an 11-year-old girl, my daughter. You know, I have two little boys that are five and eight, and then I have an 11-year-old daughter, and she's a very strong-willed, beautiful (laughs) soul, and she wants the world to be better. We didn't really shy away from showing them what was happening, whether it was political, whether, whether it was civil unrest, whether it was the pandemic. You know, I kind of just feel like they are living this and we're in this epicenter of all of this stuff. And I felt like they needed to live it. Even my five-year-old, I didn't really shy away from a lot of it. And I am really proud of them. And I'm excited to see that if kids like my kids who are privileged kids, if they want to see it change, well, then there is hope, right? And so it's been a tough year, but yet... If my little kids keep saying, mommy, we can do this, we can help, you know, it's exciting for me to see that hopefully the world will get better. And, you know, Ruby's the first one to say, mom, get your mask back on because, you know, (laughs) numbers are going up and we want to make sure we stay safe. (laughs) Dad, like she's on our toes all the time, you know, like she's just making sure that we are being the best people we can be. And also we want to be the best parents we can be. So, yeah. Life is good, you guys. We are from a beautiful place. We have a beautiful life, but we can always work to be better. And I think that's what we're doing here in my household and hopefully in a lot of others. Well, I think it's pretty cool that you're talking about, I guess, the experience that you're having, seeing the world through your daughter's eyes and and through your children's eyes, for that matter. And Brian did a really good job. He, He mentioned something in our notes here about train your brain. And I think this was something that your father had instilled in you at a young age that helped you uh, succeed uh, and excel as a professional athlete. But 
that makes me think a lot about just your example and, and your husband's example for your children and what you're trying to instill in them in terms of how they are thinking about and are allowed and supported to think about what's going on around them and in the world today. You're exposing them to reality. And I think that's helpful. And, and do you get a lot of what you gained from your father and experiences that you had in terms of just him supporting you, developing a strong mentality? Is that kind of like something that you feel is lending itself now as you're raising oh, your children? Most definitely. You know, I always say if I could be half the parent my mom and dad were to me. <laughs> I mean, I just, I was lucky that way. I grew up with a mom and dad that were so supportive, but yet I had two older sisters. So there's three girls. My dad was a lawyer and a college football player, loved sports, but I guarantee you. Wow. My dad would not have been a, a successful lawyer or a successful football player had it not been for the lady in his corner because my mom <laughs> put him through law school. She was on every sideline. You know, I tell everyone this, but when she watches, say, the final four of the NCAAs or the Sweet 16 even, she's got every single bracket going. She knows every team. And she never had the opportunity to play sports. And yet wow. she raised three girls that we all believed we could do whatever we put our minds to because my mom told my dad that. And we heard stories about that. And we, she also told us girls that. And you know what? My dad believed it because of my mom and all of us girls did. So I hope I'm like that. Ruby and I were just talking right now. She wants to build a business of slime. Like what 11-year-old doesn't want to do slime all day, right? <laughs> right. And I uh, hate yes. it. Yeah. I hate it. I don't want it in my house. It's a mess, whatever. But I said, hey, instead of putting like a cherry, like a, you know, a little plastic candy in there or whatever they have in there, I'm like, why don't we put yeah. some like affirmations? Like, let's do slime where mm. all of a sudden you pick out a saying that's like, reach for the stars or you can do this. And, you know, so that's where yeah. I kind of train their brain rather than like, let's think about what candy we can eat or let's think about what toy we want to play with. But Hey, let's think about how we can train our brains to be better. So just funny that that little interaction we just had 20 minutes ago and you talking, mm -hmm. John, about training your brain, that's kind of where my mind is always. It's always thinking about mom and dad and how they raised us girls. But yet, how can I subtly try to tell my kids to believe in themselves? Can I ask you, Carrie, was your mom a very competitive person? Oh, so competitive. Like she's the, <laughs> she is the grandma that is taking stats. And my sister has gotten her stat books on basketball or football, the, uh -huh. the old school stat books, not the app. She's not using the apps. She writes them down. She says, what kind of assist, you know, how many shots were taken points, all that stuff. And um, very competitive. And it kind of hurts my heart that she didn't get to use that. You know, she's used it mm -hmm. in different ways. She had her own business when a lot of women didn't. She was a hairdresser. And she did it all on her own. But I do think that she would have been a heck of an athlete. And, you know, us girls yeah. really, yes, my dad had the athletic ability that we all saw. But I think my mom really had the drive. When you were training and you got into running, can you tell us how you got into running? And I'm curious if you have any sort of connections. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to explore. I feel like your mom specifically had seemed to have a really strong influence on your outlook on your ability and what you thought you could do and stuff. So how did you get into running? And then how did they support you in that process? Yeah, you know, my two older sisters, like I said, were very athletic. My oldest sister, though, was super good at almost everything she did the classroom, music, and sports. Like she just 
was always solid with whatever she did. And my middle sister was very good at school too, but would much rather be playing sports, right? So I had these two older sisters that I just wanted to be like. And my mom Mm -hmm. and dad were encouraging them. And I was five years younger than my middle sister, seven years younger than my oldest sister. So I had quite a bit of an age gap to see how they grew up and what I wanted to do. And once I went out for cross country, I was in seventh grade. My sister, Cammie, the middle sister, was a senior. So I could be on the same team as her. And I actually, um, I beat her in my first race. (laughs) So she, (laughs) you know, and she loves the story, but it's probably too long for our podcast today. But I came up on her shoulder and she basically turned to me and told me to get going and to go try my very best. Don't ever sit on your sister, you know, because it's not Mm -hmm. fun for the older sister, for sure. So she basically told me to get going. And I did. And I was nervous. And afterwards, she came up to me and said, Carrie, don't you ever hold back for anyone? You know, and she probably had my mom and dad's words of advice in her ears or in her mind. But that was a really big moment in my competitive career. I didn't know I was going to be an Olympian at seventh grade. I didn't know I'd be a state champion. I just knew Mm -hmm. that my sister, my big sister, who was very good, second in the state in the 100-meter hurdles, like very good all around, came up to me and said, don't you dare sit on anyone's shoulder. You pass them and you go for it. And so I just always kind of had those things going on in my mind. And as an eighth grader, I won state, didn't really know what I was doing. And then I won every year after that. So really good role models in my life. And my parents, yes, were always in our ears telling us to believe in ourselves, to work hard. If you sign up for something, you work hard at it. But also kind of nudging us to keep working. You know, there's people working just as hard as you are. And they did it in a loving way, but they didn't really let us float. They always kind of said, okay, let's go. Let's get back out there. Keep going. I love the example of what your sister said to you, having that type of a moment that you can easily pinpoint and remember and recall how it made you feel and the impact that it had. I had a few of those moments too, where it was like a certain moment where a certain person said something like my dad, you know, had said something to me as a runner, like leading up to, and even more so right after my first Olympic trials. And he was just like, I'm glad that you listened to your heart more than anybody else because people were telling me I couldn't do it to give up, that it wasn't going to work out, especially when I had all these stress fractures. And he said, I'm glad that you didn't listen to me or anybody else in terms of maybe stepping away too prematurely. And so those moments are very impactful. They don't come all the time, but when they do, it's really cool to be able to share it and recall it and realize, hey, that actually made a big difference in the journey that I was on. I mean, I just think of how important that role is of having a parent or if it's not a parent for you, if it's a coach or a mentor, um, it could be a sister or brother or grandma, grandpa. I mean, just finding someone in life that kind of not gets under your skin, but gets under your skin a little bit, you know, like makes you really dig for what you want. And I'm Mm -hmm. really thankful that I had a few of those people that are in a small knit group of mine that hold me accountable. Because there's times, you know, John, as runners, like, we have to be reminded why we're doing it. It's hard. It's Mm -hmm. not an easy sport. Anyone who picks this up, whether you're a newbie or a veteran or an elite athlete, world class, whatever, this sport is hard for all of us. And so I I think that I constantly am needing accountability. And 
you know, my dad worked on my mental game a lot. We visualized and we talked about things and strategizing. My mom was more like, you're the prettiest one out there. Just go get them. You know, because every mom <laughs> thinks you're beautiful. So she would she would keep it light. Dad would kind of, you know, get in there and talk strategy. But, you know, I think you really need to find people that are in your corner, no matter if you're an athlete or not. Just find somebody that helps you see the best in you. And, you know, like I said, holds you accountable. I wanted to ask you about your dad's role, because I think I just heard you talking about it somewhere else about what he did for you. And, and it sounds like a lot of it was about mentally getting yourself in the right place to compete. That's what I'm taking from the visualization and, and the strategizing and stuff. But um, can you give us any anecdotes around that? I think this is really important. I think this is something that we don't do enough of. It's sort of getting ourselves, I don't want to say getting ourselves in the right mental state to compete, but preparing, not just physically, but mentally for what we're preparing to do. Oh, I totally, totally believe in having to get yourself mentally in the right spot, whether you're giving a speech for work, parenting, marriage, you know, relationships, whatever. And for me, it's not necessarily am I um, thinking about the third lap anymore. You know, I'm not doing that anymore. But I get there. I go back to that third lap because in my life, I always kind of use those life lessons that sport has taught me. I mean, I can even talk about, you know, what I would do on the full court press. Like I can remember being the stinger, the, the, <laughs> the person at the point, like, you know, like, I mean, those are the things that sport has taught me because that's what makes me tick is sport. But yeah, mm -hmm. my dad would just figure out a way. Like, I don't think he had to tell me to work harder physically. Because that was something that I liked to do. I liked to go and do workouts. They were fun for me. He knew I would get out there. But I think he knew his role was more to make me figure out how I could mentally be better than someone. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that's kind of the thing that gets you past or over the hump is being able to overcome your fear or overcome the pain or overcome just nervousness of what everyone else is doing out there and how they're feeling that kind of thing. So Did you physically, I could do it. Oh. Mentally, I think I felt like I needed help. I was going to ask you, um, so I have this image of people who are super successful early in the sport when you're young, like it almost comes really easily. At eighth grade, you don't know how hard it is what you're doing, but you won a state championship, right? Mm -hmm. So as you moved up the levels, maybe it was in college, maybe it was post-collegiate. Did you hit a point where it was like, oh, like, now the competition has fully caught up and I have to change what I'm doing in some way in order to, to get to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like from probably my sophomore year of high school, I figured it out. There were some girls from the big schools. So I was lucky. I ran both classes in Minnesota. I ran against the big schools one year and then the little schools because we were always a little bit too much or a little too little. So I got to run against everyone in the state. Now, so this is the first year we're going to three classes in the state of Minnesota. We only used to have two. But I just feel like I always kind of wanted to figure out how to keep getting better and not necessarily just float on what my time was before. But when I was in 10th grade, they started coming to me. So I had people from the big schools asking if they could come way out to rural Minnesota to race against me because they wanted to see how I raced. So that's wow. where I think I learned that, okay, I got to be on my toes. I got to figure out how to beat people that are now coming to me and trying to challenge me on my own turf. And then we would start doing <laughs> some national races like Foot Locker, 
that kind of thing. Putting they introduce the sport. I say they, my coaches and my parents, they introduce the sport at a nice rate. I didn't do any national races until I was a sophomore. Um, you know, I started traveling around the country then. It wasn't early on. And then when I went to Villanova, I was getting my butt kicked every day at practice. So mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, every year, I think the pressure became more. But I was getting older, too, so I could figure out how to handle it a little bit more, too. So, yeah, it was definitely a journey. How did you feel as you continued to compete more and more every year that you were in this sport? How did you feel about um, your success and what it could mean, you know, in terms of achieving what you ultimately achieved like how did your perspective evolve over time I would have to say by my senior year of high school I know we're talking a lot about high school but there was a lot of learning that happened then I didn't lose Mm -hmm. a race in the state of Minnesota from eighth grade all the way until my very last race as a senior in high school and I'm not saying one of the reasons why but one of the reasons why was I dropped down to run the 800 at state rather than running the mile and the two mile, like I had all those years. And I raced against this woman that was mm. phenomenal. She went on to run D1. She was a 205, 800-meter runner as a freshman in college, which was pretty fast back then. I figured out, you know, that pressure adds the more you win, right? So mm-hmm. I keep looking at, like, a Simone Biles, and I'm like, God, I have never had that kind of pressure, ever. But the pressure that I had, I kind of get it. Um mm-hmm. I liked it, but yet I could see where it's too much at times. I didn't ever feel like it was too much. But when I went to college that next year after getting beat at my very last state championship, and I'd won 13 before it, um, I was back to square one. I was a freshman. It felt like Mm -hmm. I was in seventh grade all over again. And it was fun to take my time to get back up there. So again, I think I was fortunate with being able to do it the way I did it. Do you think that that helped you actually having to get the reset a little bit yeah. from losing going into a new situation? I do. The reset, that's a good way to put it. Like, yeah. The pressure was off, right? I didn't. Yeah. I had been beaten at Foot Locker. So there were three times in cross country and I think twice in track. So five times altogether from eighth grade on until that last race of my senior year. So I think by the time I went to Villanova, I was kind of ready to just, I wanted to win, but I was okay with just being the best I could be with Villanova's cross country team. And they were number Mm -hmm. one in the country. So I just knew like, if I could just be the best I could be, that would help. And so the reset was much needed and, and it was fun. It was fun to kind of go back to just being the young girl that could ride the coattails of whoever was in front of me. I wanted to ask you about that. It's one of my passionate topics is the idea of goal setting, but less goal setting around the idea of the specific, I want to be an Olympian in 2004 type of goal when you're you know eight years out and you're planning something that's so far out there in the future. It's the idea of goal setting in a self-reference way, focus on yourself and your self-improvement and building a mindset around not getting overly consumed by the external goals, right? But, but having those internal goals, I'm wondering how did you balance that sort of idea of being your best, the best you can be with the idea of there's all these other external goals that you're probably also setting or that the, your team is setting together as a group or that you are being pushed to set by other people in terms of what you should be striving for? Yeah, I mean, even in at Villanova, the first couple of years, I was seventh at the NCAAs 
in cross country as a freshman. And then I wow. was seventh. I might have been ninth. No, I was seventh. I was seventh because there were two freshmen in front of me. They were second and fifth, and I was seventh. It's crazy. We, we had a, a crazy year that year. But then mm-hmm. as a sophomore, I was fifth. And then by my junior year, I was ready to win. And I ended up being lucky enough to win. But I just think that it might have been me, but I really think it was my coaches. They let me grow into the sport. And I do think my parents did have, you know, you have conversations with your college coaches. At least my parents had conversations with everyone that was trying to recruit me. And, you know, I think that they just said, we want her to have fun. We want her to grow into the sport. Carrie is like a goofy gal. Like she runs well when she's happy. So I don't know if my Villanova coaches like took that to heart or if that's just how awesome they are. But there was never pressure to win. There was pressure to be the best you could be. And that I thrived off of, you know, um, my junior year when I did win, I think they knew I could win. It was, there was like a lot of eye opening races that led us to believe the win was there. And that's where I remember having those hard conversations where I went in John Marshall, he's a 800 meter Olympian. And he was one of my coaches at Villanova and I went in and he said to me, Hey, Carrie, I'm just going to tell you, Amy Skiras is not sitting at home, you know, just hanging out. She's getting ready for this national. She wants to beat you. And so, you know, that's one of the first conversations that I remember him finally saying, like, eyes are on you, girl. Let's go. And it was good. It was a good kick in the pants. And so I want to say it was my coaches knew how to coach me. But I also think that I took the mentality of just be better each year. Just try to get a new PR. If it doesn't happen, that's okay, but you're trying for it. Try to improve mm-hmm. your position. And so I think just baby steps is how I approached my career. And I think my coaches approached it that way too. That's as good as it gets, man. I know Brian loves that because I was the freshman that came in at UCLA when Brian was there. And I'm like, I'm going to be the best in the world. I'm <laughs> like, and the guys, the other guys are like, uh, you're not even the best on the team yet. <laughs> what are you talking about? But I talked as if like I was convinced that I was going to be the next great, you know, miler, the greatest miler ever. And it was actually our teammate, Scott Abbott, who said to me, and it was one of those moments. And I absolutely love Scott for doing this. He turns to me and says one day at practice, how about you just try to focus on being the best that you can be? You know, and he says, whatever that leads to will be good enough. And I don't want to accept that unless it was the best in the world. But I I honestly took it to heart. I trust this guy. And I said, you know what? I'm going to focus on being the best that I can be. That same year as a freshman, I won the junior national championship. And I attribute a lot of that to Scott saying, just be your best and let's see where the chips fall. And I think that those baby steps, just putting yourself in a position to just inch your way forward, the journey is going to. You still got to go through the journey, no matter how fast you want to get to the the destination, but you still got to go through the steps in the process. I think it's amazing that you experienced it the way that you're describing it right now is that it was about the baby steps and you had people around you that, that got that. I think that that's the right approach. And I hope more people find themselves doing that because it ultimately will lead to, I think, a lot more success than you might otherwise have if you forced it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and it made it for a fun career. You know, when I won that NCAA championship as a junior, I knew I had a big tumor in my heel, and I knew that I was going to have mm. to take care of it after. So I also had that riding on me that I, I had this potential career ending, potential cancer in my heel. Heel. So 
there was a lot of factors going into that cross country meet, just knowing that, okay, we're going to give it a go and we're probably going to have to shut it down for the rest of the year after. So, you know, even <sighs> though I had baby steps in mind, I also mm-hmm. had this big thing like, whoa, there's some life changing situation that could happen here. So you better run, girl. <laughs> and you better run hard. Yeah. How did you handle that unknown about your heel, actually, at the time? Was that something that you found particularly stressing? Or yeah. were you confident that it was not that it was going to be fine? No, I was very stressed with it. Um, wow. I mean, it was weird. <clears throat> you know, when you're so like, I was so fit. I knew I was so fit. And I was winning these races. And I was, I was setting records. And um, you know, whether it was like Big East or it was just different re- records that I was racing on these different courses. But I had found out the week before NCAA track that I had a stress fracture in my fourth metatarsal. And then the doctors were like, we don't really care about this little stress fracture in your fourth metatarsal. You can run through that. I had one more week. They were like, you'll be fine. But wow. your heel, you have a 50 cent piece, which I always laugh when I say that because a lot of people don't want no, don't know what 50 cent pieces look like anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, you have a huge tumor in your heel and it's right in your calcaneus, right underneath your heel or your ankle bone. And the thing that scared me the most was obviously they said cancer. They were like, we have to test it to make sure we have to have a biopsy of it. But you're right under your, your ankle bone where if it goes through and there's no fluid or protection, it will shatter your heel like an axe does wood. And I'll Oof. never forget that when the doctor said axe, you know, goes through wood. I'm like, oh my gosh, we know what that, what mm. it looks like when an axe goes through wood, completely shatters it. Mm-hmm. So I was running, we had, we were taking um, MRIs and x-rays of it like every four to six weeks from the spring until the end of November and watching it to see that there wasn't any movement, no hot spots, things like that. And I got through November, but the first MRI that I came back to after the NCAA was, was there was a hot spot. And so they were like, ah, this is moving, things are changing. That showed maybe potential of cancer. Went in, no cancer, thank goodness. Filled it with donor yeah. bone. And the rest is history. I got back. But yeah, it fueled me. But I'll tell you what, it fueled me even more to come back and to show everybody that I was going to be able to run with this new heel and I was going to be my old self. So, you know, there's a lot of things that fuel people. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I, well, I just got to share just because I can, I can relate to the experience. Um, how do I put this? I mean, I did not handle very well at all being diagnosed with a terminal kidney disease and I allowed it, you know, looking back at it now, I allowed it to derail my professional career. I still, I think, could have done some really amazing things, regardless of the fact that I was diagnosed with FSGS in 2008, that I was told weeks before the Olympic trials in 2008, weeks before that I was halfway towards kidney failure. And then I had to still go and try to make my first Olympic team. And the thing that's inspiring about what you're sharing about your experience, though, which is, I think, honestly scarier uh, than what I went through because nobody wants to hear the C word. Nobody wants to hear cancer. And you're so young in your career. At least I had a couple years under my belt as a professional before I was told I was dealing with kidney disease. Um, but I, when I actually got the biopsy after the Olympics and was told officially what it was, 
that changed everything for me. Mentally, it was just like, that's not the priority anymore. Running, even though I went on to finish fourth at the Pan Ams a few years later and do okay for a few years, I never was the same after that. I couldn't find the fire, you know, and, and I look back and go, goodness gracious, I, I kind of let something go. So it's really cool to hear that you got fired up. You're like, I'm going to prove something. And you really did let that fuel you. That's really cool. And I hope because of the two examples, the contrast, I, I gave up something that I probably didn't have to give up, but mentally I, I went through the other way. You went the opposite direction. And I mean, the rest is history. You're one of the greatest, you know? Oh, <laughs> so well. I love you know, hearing I, that. I love hearing that you chose to do different. that. You know? Yeah. But we yes, all deal we do. with it different. And, you know, you had something that was maybe not quite of a, uh, you know, we didn't know it was going to be a quick fix, but mm-hmm. it was a quick fix. It was an amazing, like, to have donor bone given to you so you can continue on with a career. Like, somebody's life, you know, it was gone, but they were giving Mm. back. I hope everybody is a donor. Like, anyone listening, please donate. You know, I mean, it's amazing what you can do. But I think it's just they're different different, um, things, John. And, you know, I wasn't in your situation. I was in a situation where I knew I had to have surgery. Even if I yeah. had cancer in that heel, I knew that the doctors would take care of it. But yeah, it did flip the switch for me to see how I could get through it, to see how good I could be with it, and then to come back even better after. So, you know, we all have those ups and downs in life, and it is how we handle it. You've handled your life just fine. <laughs> I think I'm doing all right. You, you know, know I mean, I'm still a happy-go-lucky guy. You know, I got right. a, a beautiful family and, you know... Brian chooses to still be my friend. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, it's great. Awesome. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I want to ask you a little bit about 2004 because I love the idea of the Olympic trials. We're just going through the cycle right now. So obviously we all saw the Olympic trials. The Olympics are going on as we record this. The Olympic trials is such a significant moment in most athletes' careers because it's almost as much the main goal is happens there as it does at the Olympics, right? And I want to ask you about this. How much was becoming an Olympian the main big like external driving goal for you leading up to 2004? Yeah, I mean, my first Olympic trials was in 2000. And I was one of two, I think, collegiate athletes, Kara Goucher, who's another mm-hmm. Minnesotan, and myself were in that final of the 5k. And I got lapped by Regina Jacobs, as she was like, celebrating on NBC, I had a whole nother lap. (laughs) So everyone saw me. They're like, Carrie, we saw you. And I'm like, yeah. And I had one more lap and Regina was done. Um, But then I came back in 2004 and, you know, I was so excited. I had run 1504 for the 5k, which, you know, that was the seventh fastest time in U.S. history at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I was so excited to make that team. And then I missed it. And I, you know, got my doors blown off me in the last two laps of that race. And I ended up sixth. And then I came back and won the 1500 in a race that was, it was a good race of mine, but maybe a secondary event for me. And, um, oh, interesting. Yeah. 1500 was definitely more like, you know, I loved it, but it was secondary. But, you know, yeah, making that Olympic team was life changing because I got beat in the 5K. You know, everyone thought I was going to make the team in the 5K. My agent, my sponsors, everyone thought I was going. They were all telling people to book their tickets. 
And I'm like, do not book your tickets. You're going to jinx me. <laughs> That's and, the jinx. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't. And it still didn't work. Um, but then <laughs> to come back, my coach told me, do not lead the 1500. I'd led pretty much every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would have to say that learning how to make that Olympic team, especially in a country like America, and actually yeah. doing it is so much more stress than actually running the games. You know, when you're yeah. at the games after you make our team, it's just like icing on the cake. And, yeah. you know, I didn't have the pressure to win a gold there. So I don't know that pressure, but I know the pressure of trying to get through rounds and do all that. And, and I was the only American. No other mm-hmm. Americans qualified that year. So, um, yeah, I would have to say, and I think most Americans would say, the stress to getting the Olympics happens at the trials. It's not yeah. nearly as much when you're there. All right. I have some questions for you about this race because I'm going to put it in the show notes for people to watch it. There's, we, <laughs> I found it on YouTube and you can rewatch it. I remember this, of course, <laughs> because I was just learning all about the Olympics and I'm only two years younger than you, but I'm, I think developmentally in my career, I was just like getting serious around that time is watching these. But it was a great Olympic were, trials too, by the way, that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that 04, that was a lot. That was very fun to watch. Yeah, it was. Alan Webb won the 15. Yeah. So you're in this race. You just said to me something that I wanted to ask, and that is your coach told you not to lead the race. And yet you found yourself leading the race and leading most of the race. Yeah. And so this is one of those questions I always like to ask people who are at your level, which is how do you make that decision to go against the plan or change the plan or or adapt in the moment to whatever is happening in the race? Right. Mm -hmm. What was going through your mind that you can remember? What were you telling yourself when you found yourself leading the race? Well, I had four word cues and I was trying to repeat my four word cues. Every lap, I had a different one. And I remember that one of them was sit and meaning Uh like sit on the shoulder. And I couldn't sit on anyone because I was in the lead. (laughs) And I just remember thinking, okay, just relax. But uh, to kind of go back a little bit, I was on the inside lane. So mm-hmm. I got out hard. I needed to get out hard. You know, in the 1500, you kind of all crunched together. I didn't want to get tripped up. I wanted to get out. And nobody wanted to go super fast. It was 116 degrees on the track that day. It was yeah. much like um, how the Eugene was for the Olympic trials this year. Super hot. Right. Not quite as humid because it was so mm-hmm. dry there in Sacramento. So it was conservative. You know, we ran 408 to win mm-hmm. it. But I had my coach... What he said, don't lead this race. And I was in the lead and I was, I had it in my mind, but I was trying not to like panic. I was trying to fly by the seat of my pants and figure it out. And I do remember Shalane Flanagan came up on me and I was like, oh, there's Shalane. Good. But then also a little disappointed because Jen Toomey, who you guys will see if you watch, she's got mm-hmm. the speed that I don't have over 800 meters. So when I saw Jen Toomey go around Shalane, I was like, oh, here we go. So just, yeah, you do have to be able to sort of be ready to change on the go, right? And um, again, it's another life lesson. Like you can't just think everyone's going to do what you want to do in life. You're going to have to figure it out. And so I did have to calm myself, but then I also knew I had to push from a little further out because of the Gen 2 knees in the race. And um, so that's what I did. I just started to push a little further than I would have if I were sitting like I was supposed to. Yeah, you know, for people who are big fans of track and field, if you've seen Matt Centrich win the gold medal, it reminded me in some sense of that. It's like you got in the lead. Maybe it's not where you wanted to be, but you just sort of 
kept it all conservative. It, to, it seemed you, you kept it under control, kept it, you kept it managed, but you, you didn't freak out about being in that position. And then the thing that's also remarkable about the race is in the final hundred meters, it looks like you're getting past and falling apart. And then you summon something to surge back to steal the win. And I, I also wanted to ask you about that. Like if you have any memories about that, because I think it was Jen Toomey who passed you. Yes. And I'm sure in that moment you had a choice like to give up and like, dang it, Jen Toomey just passed me or to go for it. And you obviously went for it. You rallied back for the win. It's really remarkable finish. Well, and thank goodness I did because I went to the Olympic Games because I won that race. And so I won with the B standard, which is how I got to go. We didn't, none of us, we went over and raced in Europe. I raced six races in like 12 days in six different countries and none of us got the standard. So I had the B standard and won the race. So thank goodness. But yes, she came up, she passed me a little bit. And then she started to sort of rig a little bit. She started to come into me on my lane. And I laughed when you're asking me because I seriously remember saying, no, like in my head. And it was like slow-mo, like going the last five steps. And I gave it every little ounce of energy I have had. And I just was so thankful at the end. Like I didn't even stop for the NBC interview. I could not wait to get around to my family and my coach because I did that uh, victory lap and I just knew it. I was like, coach is going to be mad at me. I led the whole dang thing pretty much besides maybe two steps. And, you know, the first thing he said to me was, thank goodness you won that race. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, you don't come back a lot of times when someone goes around you. And so every now and then when I'm doing a speech and I watch that race, that's one of those moments where I was proud of myself. and. I think it's okay to say that. That was a tough moment. And Mm -hmm. I reacted. And I'm so thankful because making that Olympic team has changed my life. You know, I've had a career after the sport because of that one team. And so it was a tough, tough moment to be in, but pretty happy I dug a little deeper. Can I ask you to go back a couple minutes to the idea of the word cues? And... I think I've heard of people using this, but can you, it's a really interesting tactic. I'd like for you to just outline what it is and how it worked for you and and why you you used it. Because I think it might be something that people who are listening can apply in in their own racing strategy or or as they prepare for what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I coach a lot of different levels and I always am talking about word cues. And I think it's an easy thing to do, you know, for that race in particular, it was a three and three quarter lap race, but I broke it down to a four lap race. And I had a different word for each lap. The 5K, I had a different word for each 1,000 meters or each K. So for me, the reason why I do that is because I I just want to have a positive thought going on or a productive thought going on. So if there's a negative thought, I can squash it right away and just go right back to the ease of just having one word. So whether it's sit or relax or believe or get ready, kick, Like those simple little things, um, strong, you know, any of that stuff, that for me kept my mind in a place. And believe me, I went to the dark side every now and then. (laughs) And I went negative, but it would just be like, wait, I'm supposed to be saying strong right now. And I do it on hill repeats. I do it during mile repeats. I do it during races. I do it during long runs. You know, it's just something that for me, it just makes me go back to that positive thinking and 
a goal-driven mind. That's amazing. It makes me think of like a river that flows. And the only way to redirect the river in terms of a thought in our mind is to put up a dam and redirect the water to another way. So if you create a thought and you're like, this is the thought that I'm holding on to, I'm going to grab this thought based on a word that triggers it, the energy is going to flow with that thought. So if the thought's positive, it's going to flow positive and then you're going to have this positive energy that uplifts you and that you're going to be able to tap into. If it's negative, it's going to have a more draining effect and you're going to go that way. So you need those cues. And man, not a lot of people have that. But when you can create stuff like that for yourself mentally, it's like a superpower. It's like you're literally tapping into a battery full of juice. You're like, okay, next battery, next 1K or next lap. That's so cool. I've never really thought about the cues or the word cues and the way that you're describing how you implemented it. I love it. That's so cool. Yeah, I think that it was just an easy way for me to not have to overthink. Yep. One of my college coaches, Marcus O'Sullivan and Gina Percaccio were um, with me at Villanova for the majority of my career there. And, you know, they used to say, just don't think and run. Just stop thinking. Because when you think, <laughs> you know, I, for me, my thoughts got in the way until I started using positive word cues. And that just, it's Beautiful. easy. Okay, we, we don't have a ton of time. We can't keep you forever. But I do want to take a little moment to ask you about your experience running post-parent, post-mom, right? And you, uh, a couple of years ago, this is, I think, right before COVID, if I'm not mistaken on the timeline, you ran a, a 252 marathon at the Twin Cities Marathon. Ryan, in... it's 251.56. Come on now. Oh, see, that was your test. Yes, you are a professional runner. You, you went down to up. the seconds on me. You can... Stats, man. Stats. She was trained yes. by the best, do, man. Do you know how bad it hurts to say I've run 1504? 1504. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so can you give you me the four seconds on my marathon, dude? I'll tell you this. Yeah, I will give yeah. those to you. I tell everybody, I have to say this. When I ran 1500 meters, my PR was 350.1. And oh. I ran it twice. And I never got into the 349s. And I always felt like I could have. I felt like I had the ability. I just didn't get it done. And so unfortunately, I'm not a three. I never ran in the 340s for the 1500. Um, Okay. So I'll give you your four seconds. Yeah. It was pretty good. I'm okay with it now. The uh, 251.56 Twin Cities Marathon. You... You did this with three kids. You've got a career. You're doing broadcasting. You're doing podcasting. I want to just ask you a little bit about how you approached your training for that, given the new constraints you have of all these other things in your life? Well, if anyone has looked at my Strava, they they know that I'm not lying when I say I run on average, probably five days a week. And mm-hmm. I am okay with that. You know, like, I am not going to be an 80 mile girl ever again, 80 mile per week girl ever again. I am like a 30 mile per week girl. And I run hard. So this is what I always say. I run hard and I rest hard. I like taper for my long runs. I do my long run and then I rest and recover from my long runs. So, you know, I think the big thing for me is I love 20 to 30 minute runs. And then I love a long run because that's my kind of my, you know, I don't know, happy hour, I call it. Like I don't go out very much because I'd rather be with the kids and Charlie. But when I go for a long run, that's like my, you know, it fuels my soul for the week. So I'll run a hard long run each week. But yeah, life is busy and I'm trying to figure out how to fit it in because the run still is super important to me. I love it. It makes me happy. It makes me a better wife and mom. It makes me a better businesswoman. So whether it's 20 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes, 
Uh, you'll see me getting after it pretty hard and I run hard, but that's how I think I ran that marathon. I ran the marathon like a happy hour. You know, I chatted for as long as I could. And then I remember there was one spot at about mile 22 where my husband and kids came and it was up on top of the hill. They came to a, a tough spot to cheer me on. And I was there. I like didn't even see them. I had gone back to the moment of being that world-class athlete because I was focused on getting up the hill and I had no business focusing because I did not put the proper training in for the marathon, but I went there <laughs> and uh, my husband waved. He's like, Carrie, like waved really hard. And then he yelled at me, Carrie, your kids are yelling for you. Can you wave to them? You know, but I think that my training is really doable and it's something that people would probably be like, oh, you know, I should maybe quit worrying so much about getting the max amount of mileage in and just focus on getting out there when I can and making it worthwhile. So I'm not doing a lot of, you're not going to see a lot of mile repeats or temple runs. You see me go out and run hard, you know, three to five times a week. The other days, if I do have a couple other days, they're pretty easy, but everything's right around 6.30 to 7 minute pace. Yeah, that's fast. That's moving. Heart rate is too high. Anyone like Brian, you'd probably look at my training and be like, Carrie, you are way too high in your heart rate. You, you're not training the right zones, you know, but I take a lot of days off or a lot of, you know, 48 hour breaks in between runs. Makes sense. Makes sense. That's, that's, my, that's my kind of training nowadays. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. 20 minute runs, lots that. of rest in between. Yes. <laughs> Do a little long run challenge. I don't know if you guys have seen. So my long run challenge, though, I swear by. So about... um I don't know. It was when Greer, my little guy, he's five. When he was born, I started at 10 weeks and I would run 10 miles at 10 weeks. And then I would go up each week by a mile. So when he got to 20 weeks, I did a 20 miler and then I just stopped. But now I mm -hmm. use that for my marathon mm. training. So, um, ah, I like that. yeah, it takes about 11 weeks to get to 20 miles. I'll have a down week and then I jump up to 22 and then it's taper time. So it's worked. Beautiful. Carrie, I guess I have two questions. One is, do you think you'll do any more races like these marathons? Do you, do you think if you do, will you have in mind, oh, I'm going to beat that time. I'm going to go and improve on it. I'm curious. This is just sort of getting into your mindset about it. But then as we wrap up, what's ahead for you? What are you working on that, that you'd like to share with the audience in terms of whether it could be your training or just outside of training, other, th yeah. other projects you've got going on? Yeah, I am doing Twin Cities 2021 here. So in October. And I'm doing my long run challenge. So if you guys follow, like I post it, I don't post it to show my time and things. I post it just so people know that this week I need to go longer next week, that kind of thing. Um, but I saw, you know, running to 51, 56, Brian, um, <laughs> part of me wants to say I have run to 40 something, but I am not, I'm not willing and I don't really have that gumption to train properly to really get into the 240s, if I can say that. Um, yeah. You know, if I have to take a three-day weekend without running, I'm going to do that. You know, I'm just, that's yeah. okay. And so yep. I work hard, like I said, but one of the things that I've said is if I break 250, it will be because I'm wearing those fast shoes. <laughs> so I think I'm going to wear the fast shoes. But I've only Good worn call. them for one race. I didn't run much faster than I would. It was a 5K. But I didn't really love them. So I got to figure out which pair to wear 
and pray to yeah. God they actually work. Because then maybe I will run a 240 something. <laughs> okay. It's not going to happen from the training. It would happen because of the shoes. <laughs> I love it, dude. Do it. Get yeah. the shoes and let those shoes do some work. We'll see, I right? I mean, it seems like yeah. it's working for a lot of people. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah, but, for real. Um, professionally, I'm just, I don't know. Once the kids go back to school, you know, it's been a long year and a half with them home with me. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I still love, obviously, I love to talk. You guys can figure that out. Uh, <laughs> so I'd love to stay in the sport doing broadcast and doing my podcasts. But, you know, there's times where I think about maybe I should get into coaching and not traveling quite as much, although coaching brings travel. I love being on camera. I always have. I love, you know, kind of having the pressure of performing. So yeah. I've said it a couple times that I'm a fly by the seat of my pants kind of girl. You know, I just life always brings fun opportunities and I try not to close any doors. Good for you. I love it. Yeah, me too. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you the best on everything you're working on. And um, it was really a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was fun. I'm like sweating because I'm nervous now. Like, do I need to go run 249 now or something? I don't know. The pressure's on. No. <laughs> you just keep having fun and let your kids inspire you and, and keep you on your toes, right? They do. They do. And I'll keep living through their, them. I'm telling you, you guys, right. those kids, they are smart. And they're going to make this world a better place. So we can do it. Couldn't agree more. I love it. Thanks again, Carrie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Fueling the Pursuit presented by UCAN. For both athletes and active people, controlling blood sugar is the key to optimizing focus, performance, and recovery. Thankfully, UCAN has developed a patented ingredient to deliver long-lasting energy while stabilizing blood sugar levels. So to properly fuel your pursuit both with the right nutrition and with the right food for thought, make sure to visit youcan.co forward slash podcast to subscribe to our podcast show, to see our current lineup of upcoming guests, and of course, to learn more about UCAN's amazing products.